Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandok. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Ellen Culp. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan is a faculty in residence at Walden Wallace University and former holder of the university's chair in faith and life. He also serves on the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. You may post questions in the chat at any time during today's presentation. Please send your questions to Alan Cole. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Emma McDonald. Emma is a doctoral candidate in theological ethics at Boston College. Her research brings together qualitative methods and theological reflection to examine family, formation, moral agency, and technology. She currently serves on the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Here now is Emma McDonald speaking on Fully Human and Fully Real, Thomas Merton on Technology and Embodiment. Emma? Thank you, Teresa, and thanks to the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee for having me and inviting me to give this talk tonight. I'll begin with a short prayer from Thomas Merton's Book of Hours. Almighty and merciful God, Father of all, creator and ruler of the universe, Lord of history, whose designs are inscrutable, whose glory is without blemish, whose compassion for the errors of men is inexhaustible. In your will is our peace. In this fatal moment of choice in which we might begin the patient architecture of peace, we may also take the last step across the rim of chaos. Save us then from our obsessions, open our eyes, dissipate confusions, teach us to understand ourselves and our adversary. Grant us to seek peace where it is truly found. In your will, O God, is our peace. Amen. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought renewed attention toward and a an, an new appreciation of technology as developments in the digital age have made connections across time and space more possible. We have these developments to thank for this event itself. As my reflections on technology tonight themselves rely on technology to be communicated to all of you. Our everyday lives are shaped by technologies that Merton could hardly have anticipated in his writings on technology in the mid-20th century. Although we live in a different technological moment than Merton, his perspective, I think, is instructive as we contend with new technological developments because we are in much the same position as Merton. New technologies emerge on the horizon, are heralded with promise for their transformative potential, and with scientific credibility receive institutional buy-in and support that makes their development more possible. But we can't fully anticipate how these technologies, especially if and when they become commonplace, 
this will affect society. A reader of Aldous Huxley and Jacques Ellul, Merton worried about the encroachment of technology and its potential to transform how we see and act in the world. Dependence on technology for Merton risked alienation. For instance, the invention of nuclear weapons was not to Merton a stunning technological achievement, but instead a mechanism by which we furthered our own alienation from others. The invention of new gadgets and new cars helped trap the person in an endless cycle of consumerism, which only provided different models of the cellophane packaged false self for the person to unwrap, never proceeding beyond the superficial to the essence of the human spirit. But Merton was not dismissive of technology. He recognized that technologies could be useful and could benefit humanity if properly situated in relation to the person and to society. Merton's willingness to embrace technology in a limited way, but his caution against its misuse and his skepticism of popular endorsements of technology prove helpful to guide our own approach to new technological developments. Tonight, I'll focus on one area of technological progress that received little treatment in Merton's work, technologies related to human embodiment and reproduction. Perhaps most of the reason Merton did not address the intersection of technology and reproduction is because many developments in this area came after his death. Another could be that his own life experience following his entrance into the monastery did not involve much interaction with the reproductive realm. But these technologies loom large in our current context, and in my view, benefit from being put in conversation with Merton's thought and witness. The first technological development I'll focus on did in fact develop in Merton's lifetime, and it has profoundly shaped the way that we see the process of having children. I'm referring to the obstetric ultrasound, which was first invented in the 19th 50s in Scotland. A team of researchers adapted ultrasound technologies used in factories and shipyards to see within the uterus, translating the echo of the ultrasound into the black and white visual with which many of us, I'm sure, are familiar. By the 1970s, further developments in ultrasound technology made routine screenings of pregnant women via ultrasound possible, which had a number of effects. First, it was possible to more accurately chart fetal development and growth, which made it possible to predict pregnant women's due dates. Second, it made it possible to catch pregnancy complications and abnormalities early on and monitor high-risk pregnancy. Third, it changed the way that many people see pregnancy. For many women and couples, ultrasounds have become a routine part of pregnancy an exciting chance to catch a glimpse of their growing child, to see them for the first time. Some studies indicate that ultrasounds help facilitate maternal fetal bonding. The sonogram photo becomes a common way to share the news of pregnancy with family and friends. For the few couples that learn of a fetal abnormality through an ultrasound screening, the procedure can be confusing, traumatic, and saddening as expectations for a joyful moment of connection are replaced by the stress of possible diagnoses and additional testing. When Thomas Merton was alive, the first prototypes of the obstetric ultrasound were just being developed. Now, they're a common tool used across the world to gain information 
about the progress of a pregnancy. The technology has improved rates of maternal mortality, advanced scientific knowledge about fetal development, and given parents a new way to encounter their child. In evaluating the obstetric ultrasound from these developments, I find that we concur with Merton, who in conjectures of a guilty bystander clarifies, quote, there is nothing wrong with technology in itself. It could indeed serve to deepen and perfect the quality of men's existence. And in some ways it has done this, end quote. Merton is not anti-technology, but he worries about the implications of technology and a technological mindset going unchecked. In The Road to Joy, Merton challenges, quote, the universal myth that technology infallibly makes everything in every way better for everybody, end quote. He is opposed to, quote, a complacent and naive progressivism, which pays no attention to anything but the fact that wonderful things can be and are done with machinery and with electronics, end quote. Returning to the ultrasound example, we can see the wisdom in Merton's caution. Since its invention, the ultrasound has been deployed in ways that have raised a number of different concerns from a variety of stakeholders. I'll briefly review three different directions these concerns have taken before returning to how Merton's guidance can help us in evaluating more current technologies. First, the introduction of the fetal ultrasound was one of many developments in the 1960s and 70s that further medicalized pregnancy. By that, I mean that the stages of pregnancy increasingly involved pregnant women traipsing off to doctor's offices to find out more about what was going on in their own bodies. Some feminist scholars and activists worry about these developments because it contributes to the ongoing recentering of knowledge about pregnancy from pregnant women themselves and from midwives to mostly male physicians who use technology to gain knowledge about pregnancy. At this time, scientists didn't have a great track record when it came to supporting women through their fertility journeys. In the first half of the 20th century, women of color and women with disabilities faced the possibility of being sterilized against their will or without their consent by proponents of the eugenics movement who believed that people that they designated as inferior ought to be prevented from having children so as to improve the genetic quality of the human population. Here, technological developments put to use for eugenic purposes prove disastrous as their supposed neutrality is used to justify dehumanization. Second, ultrasounds were used as a cheap and easy means of identifying the sex of the, of the fetus for the purpose of sex selection. In other words, in some cultural settings that highly prize male children over female children, including some parts of India, China, and South Korea, ultrasounds were used to detect when women are pregnant with female fetuses, and women or couples in turn might choose to abort the fetus in the hopes of having a male child the next time around. The clear imbalance in the number of male versus female children in these countries motivated their governments to make fetal sex determination and sex-selective sex abortion illegal, although some research suggests that these laws are not well enforced in China and India. While in the second case, ultrasounds became a technological facilitator of abortion, they have been used more recently in the U.S. to attempt to discourage abortion. 
The sonogram image became a common symbol for anti-abortion activists to use as evidence of their claims that the fetus shares a moral status equivalent to that of a born child. Some states that hope to limit abortions require women seeking abortions to have an ultrasound done prior to getting an abortion. The logic being that if they have to see the fetus, they might reconsider whether they're willing to have an abortion. The tension between these last two examples helps surface a key point in Merton's critique of technology, namely his insistence that science is not neutral and that progress is not wholly positive. In each case, we can see the same technological capabilities used for purposes at odds with one another. In the case of sex-selective abortions, ultrasounds become the source of knowledge that motivates the abortion itself, dehumanizing fetuses, sexed female in particular. In the case of ultrasound requirements, lawmakers intend the ultrasound to humanize the fetus and discourage abortion. Thus, the same technology serves opposite purposes that would draw moral critique from people with vastly differing political views on abortion. My point here is to show that more is needed to evaluate technology than the freedom of scientific progress for the sake of more knowledge. Merton's critique of the dominance of science as a means of making moral choices helps explain the intractability of debates around human personhood, fetal development, and abortion. We commonly appeal to science as a moral justification because, as Merton points out in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, we perceive what is scientific to be right. Quote, science can do everything. Science must be permitted to do everything it likes. Science is infallible and impeccable. All that is done by science is right. No matter how monstrous, no matter how criminal an act may be, if it is justified by science, it is unassailable, end quote. But in the case of abortion, technology and scientific evidence can be used to support vastly different moral positions, as a recent article in The Atlantic described. Scientific evidence cannot answer a question that is fundamentally philosophical. The ultrasound provides, provides a way of seeing the fetus technologically, but it does not resolve our entrenched philosophical disagreements about how to see the fetus morally. What can Merton offer here? I turn to his famous fourth and walnut experience to distinguish between the insight we gain from a contemplative orientation to the world and the knowledge that is more highly prized in our society, the scientific and technological. Merton's transformed sense of vision on the corner of fourth and walnut signals an altered moral perception independent from any kind of technological capability. He describes it as, quote, waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation, end quote. Instead, he joyfully recognizes his shared humanity with others, overcoming the sense of alienation he formerly felt with people he describes as, quote, total strangers. While their outward experience, while their outward appearance remains unchanged, Merton perceives, quote, the secret beauty of their hearts, the person that each one is in God's eyes, end quote. The importance and rarity of this vision come through in the last few lines of Merton's recollection. He says, quote, if only they could all see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, 
there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed, end quote. He concludes by saying that this vision of the person and of humanity cannot be seen, but instead only believed and understood. Merton's flash of contemplative insight is not occasioned by scientific progress or development. Instead, it is an interior conversion, what seems to be out of the hands of human control, that transforms Merton's vision from the illusion of self-isolation to the recognition of common humanity as he briefly sees the person that each one is in God's eyes. Further, this famous transformative experience of Merton's happens within the world that he so heavily critiques. Fervently resistant to the pressures of consumer capitalism, Merton nevertheless finds spiritual insight in the middle of a busy shopping district. This too speaks to the possibility in the places where Merton found danger. Consumerism poses a threat, but it can become the site for contemplative transformation as well. A similar complex tension exists in the case of the ultrasound, which in part hinges on moral perception of the value of the fetus. For couples looking forward to starting their families, the ultrasound can become a grace-filled window into the miraculous development of early life. For others, it feels like a coercive step intended to provoke guilt and shame. And still for others, it is the chance to learn whether their child's characteristics set them up to be valued or disvalued in a sexist society. My point is not to endorse the choices made in response to these experiences of the ultrasound, although few, if any, would defend sex-selective abortion, but instead to highlight once again how the technological way of seeing I have tried to describe can carry a variety of moral meanings, leaving technology an ill-suited approach to making moral judgments. By reasserting the value of a spiritual, moral way of seeing, Merton's fourth and walnut experience helps us reconsider how we rely on scientific and technological knowledge. Science and technology can tell us much about the inner workings of our own bodies, but they don't provide self-evident moral judgments. The mistake Merton identifies is our tendency to assume that the question of how to proceed scientifically can be answered by science itself. He describes this as the central problem of the modern world in conjectures. He critiques, quote, the complete emancipation and autonomy of the technological mind at a time when unlimited possibilities lie open to it and all the resources seem to be at hand, end quote. Proceeding with consumption and technological progress for their own sakes sets the human person up for what Merton calls a senseless idolatry that alienates us from ourselves and from God. For all of the supposed benefits of technological progress, Merton points out that technological advance has not resolved and has in some ways intensified violence, social injustice, poverty, and dehumanization. In faith and violence, he states, quote, we are living in a society which for all its advantages and all its fantastic ingenuity just does not seem able to provide people with lives that are fully human and fully real, end quote. 
Merton's famous essay, Rain and the Rhinoceros, gives us some insight into what he means by a life that is fully human and fully real. Here, he describes the gratuity and meaninglessness of rain that fills the woods outside his hermitage. The rain for Merton is outside of the fabricated human world. It is, quote, selling nothing, judging nobody, end quote. It's beginning and end uncontrolled by humanity. He contrasts the reality of this rain with the constructed meaning of the city, by which he means the seductions and engrossing patterns of consumerism and business. This reality leaves people, quote, barely aware of external realities, end quote, as they miss the miraculous gratuity of rain and are instead irritated by its inconvenience to their commute. It interferes with human progress. For Merton, the world enamored by technology and consumerism loses sight of the reality of the natural world, and people lose sight of their own humanity, including their own mortality. The false self offers a comforting illusion from the reality of the world, which involves vulnerability, solitude, and death, but also truth. It is all too easy, according to Merton, to, quote, mistake our vulnerable shell to be our true identity and to think our mask is our true face, end quote. This requires a lot of work as we scramble to keep up the illusion with collective fabrications. In the time remaining, I want to consider how newer technologies related to human embodiment and biology can be evaluated in light of this contrast Merton makes between truth and falsity. These technologies often purport to tell us something real about ourselves, to analyze the makeup of the person down to individual DNA strands. And I don't think Merton would find these advances in scientific knowledge problematic per se. But I think his writings ask us to be alert to the uses of these technologies that dehumanize and alienate. I'll dwell specifically on one technology and two applications of it that are playing out in our current political context. Gene mapping and DNA sequencing made it possible to sequence the human genome. In 2003, the Human Genome Project completely sequenced most of the human genome, which opened up new possibilities for genetic medicine and other related fields. In the two decades since the human genome was first successfully sequenced, companies like 23andMe have made genetic testing commercially available, giving many people new insight into their ancestry and into genetic variants in their DNA associated with various diseases. Similar to the ultrasound, but more widely applicable, Genetic sequencing has opened up a new way of seeing and a new wealth of knowledge about the human person. Because the technological process of genetic sequencing offers new insights and more information about the human person, it can appear that this technology is straightforward progress. What harm could more information do? But two applications of genetic sequencing challenge, as Merton did, the assumption that scientific capabilities can provide the framework that shows us how to live humanely. The first example is the alarming connection between sociogenomics research and far-right white nationalist movements. The field of sociogenomics analyzes DNA data and links patterns of genetic variations to particular traits in an attempt to identify genetic predispositions to certain behaviors. 
Some scientists use this technology to try to search for evidence that sets of genes associated with intelligence or propensity to violence could vary between racial groups. The problem with this approach, as law professor and scholar Dorothy E. Roberts has pointed out, is that race is not a biological category. It's a social and political category invented to justify the enslavement of certain people by slotting them into an inferior position on a racial hierarchy. The Human Genome Project itself emphasized that genetic variation among humans is greater among people the same race than it is between races. Despite Western tendencies to lump together people from Africa, research shows that a person from the Congo and a person from South Africa are more genetically different from one another than they are from a person from France. And yet, despite genetic technology confirming that biological race is a sociopolitical fiction, scientific studies in genetics sometimes fall into the trap of interpreting genetics research with reliance on racial categories. In turn, these studies have been misused and misinterpreted further by white nationalists, including the recent Buffalo Shooter, to apply authoritative sounding scientific language to prop up white supremacist ideology. For instance, the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto cited research connecting patterns of genetic variation with educational attainment. The researchers who spearheaded these studies were horrified to see their work distorted and misused to support a violent racist massacre, but the incident underscored how efforts to connect genetics to behavior in a climate of supposed scientific neutrality, coupled with the rise of far-right movements, inadvertently contribute to the promotion of, of a eugenic worldview. Here, Merton's critique of collectivity proves relevant, as he contrasts solitude and a recognition of our common humanity with the concept of the collective. Returning to Rain and the Rhinoceros, we see Merton describe collectivity as a dialectic of hate that needs not only to absorb everyone it can, but also implicitly to hate and destroy whoever cannot be absorbed. Thus, the collectivity demands rejection of certain classes, races, or groups to strengthen its own self-awareness. This is evident in the misuse of genetic research to support white supremacist identity, as far-right groups misuse science to exaggerate or fabricate divisions between groups of people, especially based on race, to fuel their hatred and violence, dehumanizing Black people in the process. For Merton, it is the solitary person who stands in contrast to this collectivity, as the solitary can only, only survive by loving all. The second example I want to mention carries less evident moral objection, but I think it proves helpful in highlighting Merton's concerns about technology. In the past 10 years, companies have increasingly used cell-free DNA testing, a form of genetic screening that tests DNA from the fetus found in blood drawn from their gestating parent to find evidence for a higher likelihood of the future child having a chromosomal abnormality, something like Down syndrome or Edwards syndrome. Companies that market these tests offer add-on tests that screen for other chromosomal issues, including microdeletions which are small pieces of chromosomes that are missing, which can cause a range of symptoms. 
For-profit corporations market these tests as helpful for parents who can gain from them peace of mind that their children will be healthy, or alternatively, prepare for their future child's genetic condition. This framing can conceal the uncertainties of the science behind prenatal genetic testing, as well as the company's motivations to attract customers and to make a profit. Parents' experiences with these tests demonstrate that they often contribute to confusion and stress. First, some of the tests appear to be less accurate than many thought. And second, some parents who received reassuring results from the tests are shocked to find that their children end up with conditions that the genetic testing could not detect before birth. As companies downplay the fact that the knowledge that these tests offer is limited and partial. Pointing out the limits of these tests is not meant to dismiss any use of them as misguided or illegitimate. There may well be plenty of legitimate uses for these tests. But as they become increasingly common, they change how we think about capability, the nature of the person, and the life worth living. In an article for the Center of Genetics and Society publication, Biopolitical Times, poet and author George Estrike asks, quote, when everything can be tested for, how will we determine what is pathological and what is normal? For that matter, what will happen to that troubled idea, idea of normal itself? When the interpretive ground is shifting, how will patients interpret complex results? What sense will they make of the avalanche of data? And in a failing health system, who will have the time to help them make that sense? When inheritable conditions are discovered, what obligations, legal and ethical, emerge between the patient, the doctor, and the company selling the test? End quote. These very legitimate questions relate us back to Merton's fundamental concern for preserving our humanity. An over-reliance on genetic testing can reduce the person to what can be tested in their DNA. As Merton points out, the real world is not bound by, quote, merely measuring and observing what is outside us, end quote, but also must involve the discovery of our own inner ground. Welcoming people into the world, whether they have chromosomal abnormalities or not, Want to recognize, as Merton does, that within each person is the deep self that he saw in the corner of Fourth and Walnut. While diagnosis can be immensely helpful, ensuring that the human person is not defined solely by diagnosis resists the encroachment of technology into our moral perceptions of one another. In Conjectures, Merton asserts, quote, technology can elevate and improve man's life on only one condition that it remains subservient to his real interests, that it respects his true being, that it remembers that the origin and goal of all being is in God, end quote. With this condition, Merton gives us a hopeful criterion with which to begin our evaluation of our own relationship to technology. He tasks us with assessing whether we use technology or whether technology is using us. In the same passage, he goes on to say, quote, but when technology merely takes over all being for its own purposes, merely exploits and uses up all things in the pursuit of its own ends, and makes everything, including man himself, subservient to its processes, then it degrades man, despoils the world, ravages life, and leads to ruin. End quote. 
This dramatic quote, typical for Merton, stands in stark contrast to the typical laudatory reception that technological progress receives in our culture. But I think it can motivate us to imagine more expansively the ways in which technologies can be used to further the common good without verging into the dangers of collectivity and dehumanization. To conclude, I want to connect Merton's insistence on embracing our real humanity with his insistence on emphasizing our creatureliness. That is to say, our participation as part of God's creation. While I won't give a full account of the applicability of this insight to genetic technologies, what is important, I think, in connecting these two is that recognizing ourselves in relationship to the rest of creation helps reorient our concerns beyond the anthropocentric. As our own destruction of the planet has decimated biogenetic diversity of other species, and in response, new efforts are underway to attempt to clone and revive extinct species, we might benefit from reconsidering technological efforts to repair our planet and focus on developing the moral vision required to see ourselves in relationship, not only to other people, but to all that has been created. Merton encourages us to begin that work in ourselves. In a memorable passage and conjectures, he, crit he critiques the complete and systematic sham of the world. To inaugurate a new way of seeing, he says, we must vomit out the pretense of the world in the desert. Our relationship with technology then is one of critical engagement. Merton's description of life in the monastery proves apt in my view to describe how we ought to relate to technology. He says, quote, one lives marginally with one foot in the general sham, end quote. Thank you, I'll turn it over to Alan. Thank you, Emma. That was really interesting. Um, nice to hear from a younger person in the Thomas Merton Society who brings us into the 21st century. Um, so thank you. There are so many different ways you could go. And let me let me preface this by saying, I'll, I'll piggyback on what I just saw in the chat. This is a good time this evening to invite others to send some questions in. We have a little more time than sometimes we do. So um, I appreciate that from your perspective. So there are a lot of different ways we could go. And the, the first thing <clears throat> that I wanted to think about was, I, since I've, I've been reading some of, of Ilia Delio's, you know, and she, evolution is at the heart of what she says. And I was thinking, oh yeah, well, human nature itself is in the process of evolving a much longer time framework than what you gave us starting back in the 50s, which I'm old enough to remember the 50s, barely. Um, but if you think about, well, human nature is evolving anyway. So um, does that lighten the the caution with respect to technology, do you think, or maybe even heighten it? So there's a there's, for me, it's a question of, so what is human nature? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think... Um, in some ways, I would say it seems to me that it actually heightens it. I think with more technological progress um, and kind of one particular thing I have in mind is transhumanism, which I didn't really talk about 
at all in this presentation, but I think uh, I was certainly thinking about um, related to some of Merton's critiques of um, this kind of construction of the false self that is in denial of our mortality. There's um, concerted effort right now to kind of um, try to surmount the um, finitude that is so inherent in human nature um, and in our creatureliness through technological means. And thus far, um, those efforts have yet to accomplish much, um, but they certainly are being funded in Silicon Valley and attracting a lot of attention. And so I think um, to me, those kinds of um, technological capabilities uh, become another way of um, doing what Merton describes in Rain and the Rhinoceros, which is kind of running around in circles, um, obsessed with kind of our own um, inventions and becoming distracted from actually encountering and seeing the world. And so I think ultimately that kind of moves us away from uh, reckoning with our nature. So I don't see that evolution um, progressing in a positive way in that respect, although um, that isn't the only example. And that's a more kind of pessimistic example, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's, it's interesting when you, you talk about that, because I have four grandkids and with just a little luck, they'll all live to the 21st century. They'll make it to 2100, and I, which blows my mind, obviously. But you think, holy cow, what are they going to do and how will they evolve? So thanks for uh, giving us a, a perspective on that. Uh, Judith Valente asked a question that was uh, a version of what I was going to ask. She says, you mentioned that Merton through thought consumerism causes us to lose sight of the natural world. Can you elaborate a bit on what you think he meant? Sure. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there's a number of different places in which Merton uh, talks about um, in connection to his critiques of technology, um, where he talks about um, the importance of um, kind of reconnecting with nature and the um, need to do that um, in a way by kind of removing ourselves from the um, trappings of society. And I think consumerism plays a role in that. And so um, I think what he has in mind there is that the kind of marketing and media culture um, tends to rely on and encourage people to consume as a means of um, forming their identity. And it offers kind of a false promise that consumption is um, salvic, salvific, at least in some kind of minor way. And so I think um, his point in kind of pushing back on that perspective is to say that um, if we um, envision ourselves as part of nature, as created by God, as in these uh, fundamental relationships with other people um, as part of creation that um, the this sense that consuming is um, essential and necessary um, is diminished and that not that we will ever kind of escape being consumers and rain in the rhinoceros he talks about the lantern as kind of this uh, symbol of his uneasy relationship with um the technological world or the kind of like fabricated world. And I think um, even for him, he recognizes how technological advance and products have been um, 
something he kind of reluctantly relies on and in some ways takes for granted. So I don't think he's suggesting that we somehow spurn that um, those developments entirely, but instead to say, um, what are the ways in which um, retreat and contemplation can um, occasion this kind of reorientation that magnifies the importance of our relationships and creation and uh, minimizes consumptive relationships that take us off in the wrong direction. It's really interesting. And and your your answer there um, caused me to to think again of something I thought about as you were speaking through the through the half hour plus is thinking about the the monastic communities and how they've adjusted to technology. I've known Gethsemane for, I don't know, a few decades now. And uh, with respect to computers and things like that, I certainly can't answer that question, but there, there are enough people on the, on the call tonight that could talk about um, their own communities and how they've dealt with this technological thing. That would be a fascinating evening in itself. But since you probably can't answer that, and I for sure can't answer as a Quaker, I don't have a clue. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued going to stay with the consumerism thing for a minute. Um, as I think about consumerism, and I think you said as much, there's a way in which consumerism is set up to, in my language, pull us out of ourselves, to take our decision out of our own free will, so to speak, and I decide what somebody else is uh, encouraging me to decide. And I wonder if that whole thrust is contrarian to the the Merton quest to find our true self. So I'm interested in in the the thrust of consumerism and pulling us out of ourselves with uh, the impulse to discover our true self. So maybe you could comment or walk around that for a bit. Sure. Yeah, I think I certainly see that connection as well. I think. in I I see Merton as um both very critical but also kind of sympathetic and that he understands how it is that people get sort of entrapped by consumerism. I think um in these kinds of contrasts and dualisms that he makes in between the city um and kind of a retreat to nature in Rain and the Rhinoceros, for instance, I think um there he's not so much um critiquing the city in and of itself so much as the falsity he sees encapsulated by the city as kind of a metaphor. Um, But I think he's himself spent a a good amount of time in city settings and I don't think he, um, you know, writes them off entirely. So I think he has, um, you know, an intimate knowledge of what it's like to live in a um, consumerist society. And so I do think he is able to recognize the ways in which that interferes with the construction of something like a true self um, or the recognition of that already existing um, in the person. And I think, again, it, it, to me, it strikes me as kind of a, a, a means of distraction that consumerism becomes um, this kind of misguided way to search for the true self But uh, I think what Merton is pointing out is that it doesn't actually lead us anywhere. And um, I think the way that you kind of see that coming through in his work is um, in the contrast between the simplicity he describes, for instance, in Day of a Stranger, when he talks about, um, uh, you know, his activity is 
breathing, as wearing pants, as these kind of very basic um, pieces of human life. And the pace and that that he describes and the and the kind of rhythm of life that he conveys is so um, slow compared to you know the way he describes people rushing around in the rain in the city and these kind of all important obsessions that people are tracking down. I think again the kind of uh, culture that consumerism inculcates in people is one of um, need and urgency. And Merton is really pushing back on that to say, um, why don't you spend some time reveling in the uselessness of rain? And there's nothing to consume that first line of rain and the rhinoceros about, um, you know, let's enjoy rain before somebody starts selling it, um, bottling it up and selling it. And so I think he's alert to the ways in which consumerism kind of encroaches and, I think that's part of the reason why he is sympathetic to people being um, kind of dominated by that mindset because it is so dominant in our society. And so he has escaped it only by retreating to a monastery, which isn't necessarily um, something available to most of us. It's interesting. I, as you were talking, I was thinking of, of every time when I go to a monastery, whether it's Gethsemane or someone else, somewhere else, even, even coming into the monastery i can feel myself begin to change somatically i can feel my body begin to to anticipate and participate in a diff, different rhythm so you're you're on to something there um gonna switch gears now that's a, that's the nice thing we can do with chat um paul pinkowski has a has a really good question for you emma could you comment on how merton's critique of technology applies to our tendency to violence Yes, I think there's a number of connections there. Um, so I'll give a few that come to mind. Um, I think, so obviously Merton's kind of concern um, between technology and violence specifically relates to technologies of warfare. I think that's um, comes through quite clearly in much of his work um, critiquing um, violence and promoting um you know, nonviolent approaches. So I think that since Merton has written, that's only intensified in some ways, the need to kind of make that connection and make that critique. So um, one kind of technological development on that front um, that draws a lot of uh, moral scrutiny in ethics, which is my field, is um, drone warfare. So the possibility that somebody could be sitting at home and like their home office or in like a government office and uh, be sending um, deadly weapons via drone uh, in another part of the world. And part of the complications with that is that it distances the person from the act of violence that they're committing. And so there's a concern that that psychological distance creates a moral distance that reduces the gravity of the experience for the person in a way that promotes um violence in a, an almost mundane way. And so I think that's a development that brings quite different ethical issues than older versions of warfare that um, were criticized, rightly so, for being traumatic for the person, for the people involved, and that um, being um, a sanctioned killer um, can really cause what ethicists call moral injury in the person. But I think a, 
even if um, drone warfare removes some of that sense of trauma, um, the desensitization that it can provoke brings a, a, another concern. Um, and I think similar to Merton, we can um, look at that through the lens of that kind of dominance of technology to say, um, why is it that these kinds of technological developments are uh, welcome to some degree? Of course, there are people raising concerns, but I think um, it becomes another potential instance of what Merton describes when he talks about, um, you know, science kind of baptizing progress as morally beneficial. And so um, the other instance I wanted to bring up was more related to some of the uh, biotechnologies that I described in my presentation. So the first um, one that came to mind related to Paul's question was um, there's like a new effort among police, uh, some police forces to use something called DNA phenotyping in their um, in cr cr uh, criminal investigations. So um, that basically involves um, hiring a company to kind of construct a profile of a suspect based on evidence gathered from the crime scene when they don't have like a picture of the um, perpetrator and to say, what can we glean from DNA evidence to form a kind of composite sketch, computerized composite sketch based on um, genetic phenotyping. And so that involves translating um, genetic evidence into phenotypes, so these physical characteristics. And part of the issue with that is um, it's not necessarily very scientifically accurate, but it also can play into broader stereotypes in our society about who's violent and who's not. And so I think that gets into another area of Merton's social critique that I didn't talk about as much, but that's something that would come up in letters to a white liberal, for instance. So his um, diagnosis of the white person in the U.S.'s moral imaginary as being kind of tainted um, by racism, I think, uh, relates to the critiques of this use of DNA pheno phenotyping to say it's a moral problem if we are uh, giving people further reason to imagine a Black person, especially Black men, as criminal. Um, if we put up, you know, these composite sketches around town, um, which doesn't necessarily actually indicate what the perpetrator looks like, but provides an image that will connect um, certain phenotypic characteristics to a perpetrator in a way that kind of shores up these um, impoverished moral imaginaries that Merton has uh, in the past critiqued. So I think that'll be another instance where violence asserts itself, but in a different way. That's great. You're going to do really well when you get to that dissertation defense. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, this may well be my last question. I'm going to I'm going to be a little less uh, clear with Teresa on this one. But um, one of the things that Quakers like to do is is talk about personal experience. So I'm going to ask you a personal experience kind of thing, and um, you could refuse to answer it. So that's going to be probably not my last question then. But um, mm -hmm. I think I think I heard you say the way to go forward with technology is by being critically engaged. So critical engagement's the way to go forward with it. So could I ask you, what does that look like in your own personal life? And the fact that you're a woman and a good bit of what you talked about tonight appropriately was, was how technology affects women. Um, I get off the hook 
even though I participated in it indirectly with my wife and some of that stuff. But um, so you could go in a number of ways from TikTok to, to your own personal experience, uh, either as a woman now or anticipatorily. But what what kind of can we watch you be critically engaged with technology and get a clue how each of us may be able to do it a little better? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll I will address that in two different ways. One of them I'll relate to a question I received as a direct message here on Zoom. So I don't know that you saw this one, but it was oh, about they're bypassing me now, are they? Oh, I, I think it was by accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this question was on digital technology and social media, which I think is very relevant to the question you asked. So I'll do it that second. But first, I just wanted to um, connect your question to some of um, the issues raised in my dissertation research, because even though that's my academic pursuit, I would say it also takes on personal importance for me as well. So in my dissertation, I'm interviewing women over Zoom who are Catholic who deal with infertility. And so my area of interest is, um, as you could probably tell from this presentation, reproductive ethics. And so part of what has been interesting in doing that research is uh, kind of when you, I think when you listen to people's personal experiences so regularly on these issues, it's really hard to come down um, super critically in an unambiguous way, which is part of the reason I appreciate Merton, both for his narrative style and for his um, willingness to preserve nuance and how he critiques technology. And so in many of the interviews that I've done, there's kind of a, I would say a critical engagement that comes through in the ways in which women engage technology. And um, one of those ways is um, often, I think there's a, a sense that the process of in vitro fertilization, which involves embryos being created in a lab setting, that that can kind of dehumanize um, early embryonic life that people can create so many that there's a sense that there's um, you know, less value attached because they were created in a lab. But what I've actually discovered, at least from the women I've talked to, is that often having, similar to the ultrasound, having that um, window into these early days of life and also dealing with the difficulty of getting pregnant and going through the expense and the invasiveness of the IVF process actually can um, cultivate a new appreciation for the tenuous nature of life and the role of a creator um, other than the two people whose gametes are involved in creating this life um, to really um, allow the embryo to continue growing because oftentimes they don't and um, that can be really devastating. And so I think seeing um, that kind of witness as an interesting engagement in which people are worried about that, uh, the invasiveness of that technology and yet can find um, ways in which that development also produces a window into um, the kind of mysteries of life and our um, our finitude and our created nature, um, I think balance well the kinds of concerns that Merton has. So I think that project for me has helped develop my own sense of my own relationship to technology. And I think I would say in some ways a similar thing when it comes to social media, I'm not on TikTok, um, but I do think there's, um, it's difficult to dismiss uh, apps like TikTok entirely because they provide such a point of connection and uh, so much um, kind of social 
progress in a way in, in um, exposing people to different and new ideas. And I think um, there's a lot to critique when it comes to algorithms um, on those apps that kind of show people certain content and promote certain ideas that are often really um, detrimental to the social order. But I think um, if we had more social organization around holding those companies accountable to um, actually create uh, versions of those um, technologies that worked for social cohesion and towards the common good, we would be in a much better position. But I don't think the solution is necessarily eliminating those kinds of technologies altogether. So I think for me, uh, in terms of your question about my personal relationship, I think about um, using these technologies in a way that is always looking for new opportunities to um, kind of question their corporate roots and figure out what kind of political action can be taken to hold them uh, more accountable, to work for better regulation, to ensure that the technologies we rely on are actually promoting the common good rather than detracting from it. Thank you very much for your own personal insights. Teresa? Well, thank you so much, Emma, for this fascinating uh, presentation. Uh, one, one piece of your presentation that stays with me is how you brought out that um, Merton's fourth and walnut experience happened right in the midst of the whole commercialism. And that's one of the areas, uh, that one of experience where he had one of his most transformative experiences. I thought that was fascinating to think about that. And uh, my, the other thing that goes to my mind then is, so what did Merton bring to it to allow him to have that experience? You know, what lens was he looking at this from? But uh, anyway, thank you so much for the, all the insights that you brought to us. I want also to thank Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Thank Alan Culp for again, so skillfully moderating the questions. Um, thank Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube for us. And I want to thank Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. So we use a lot of technology in our Tuesdays with Merton. All of you, I want to thank for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining, and we also welcome your donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for ne next month's webinar, when journalist Bob Grip, who I mentioned before and does our uh, post our webinars on YouTube, Bob Grip will speak on Washington Watches the Monk, and he will share with us what he has discovered about surveillance of Merton in the federal government's archives. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you next month.